Hi, this is Mary and Sally, Executive Director of Event Planning for Four Corners Group Psychotherapy Society, and I am here to invite you to our annual conference, Unity and Cohesion, Expanding the Circle and Strengthening the Bonds in Group Work. We are so pleased to have Marseille Turner as our keynote speaker, whose work centers around interracial dialogue and interracial engagement. We are also offering 10 institutes and 12 workshops by leaders from the Four Corners and as far away as New York and California. Seats are filling up, so buy your tickets now. You can go to fcgps.org backslash 2018 conference. Look forward to seeing you there. Thanks. Welcome to the Group Dynamics Dispatch, the official podcast of the Colorado Group Psychotherapy Society. I'm your host, Angelo Siliberti, and in this 50-minute hour, we will be featuring guests that use dynamic thinking and therapeutic interventions to bring about growth through group process. It's our hope that in listening to the podcast, you may just be inspired to think more deeply about your own experience in groups, as well as to hear what makes great group leaders tick. If you'd like to support the show, we would encourage you to leave us a review on iTunes or buy one of our recommended books through Amazon that are featured on our webpage, www cogps.org. Also, check out our social media pages at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The links to our profiles will be in the description below. If you have any feedback for the podcast or ideas for future guests, subjects, or panels, please feel free to email us. We're at coloradogroups at gmail.com. We really appreciate your listening and support and hope to see you at one of our events. So I'm your host, Angelo, broadcasting from beautiful Boulder, Colorado, and I'm inviting you to pull up a seat, lend an ear, and hear about what's happening in the ever-evolving circle of group dynamics. Welcome to the Group Dynamics Dispatch. This is your host, Angelo Silberti, and today I'm very excited to have on the podcast the upcoming keynote speaker for our conference, Dr. Marseille Turner. Welcome to the podcast, Marseille. Thank you, Angelo. I'm glad to be here. We're honored to have you. Dr. Marseille Turner is a psychologist at the University Counseling Center of Florida State University. She earned her PhD in counseling psychology from the University of Notre Dame in 2011. Her clinical work is founded in client-centered principles in working with individuals, couples, and groups. She served as the ASU CS group coordinator from 2013 until 2015 and currently co-facilitates the Florida State University Doctoral Practicum Program Diversity Seminar. She is also a co-chair of the Racial Ethnic Diversity Special Interest Group of the American Group Psychotherapy Association. She has collaboratively facilitated several AGPA annual meeting workshops, which have focused on the impact of racism and power dynamics. Her professional interests include multicultural therapeutic interventions and competence, training and supervision, and group therapy. It's an incredible delight to have you on the show today, Marseille. Thank you again, Angelo. So to begin with, we often like to find out a little bit about uh, the background, your kind of process uh, for finding your way into the field of mental health and in particular group psychotherapy. Sure. So I am a Des Moines, Iowa native. So I grew up in the Midwest. I was born and raised there. 
um, in a family that actually was a blended family before the concept existed in that I am biologically my mother's only child and I have an older brother. We share our father and then my father and my stepmother raised four of her nieces and nephews biologically as their own children. And so I have stepbrothers and stepsisters as well. Oh, wow. And so that um, really for me offered the best of both worlds. I'm an only child from my mother's standpoint, so I can um, be adventurous and try new things and do things on my own but um, I can also share my toys and play well with others. That's a wonderful blend. Yes, it, it served me well. Um, it has allowed me to do a lot of things that I think um, are truly connected to that in terms of having been an exchange student in Japan when I was in high school between my sophomore and junior years. So I lived with a Japanese family for two months during the summer. Um, so going all that way to Japan was a great adventure for me. And I, for me, I feel like I traded one set of parents for another. It's mm -hmm. just a different family for two months. And then I have stayed in contact with the family and two years ago was able to go back and visit for the first time. So I'm very excited about that. Oh, wonderful. Where in Japan was that? I was in Hokkaido. Um, I lived in a small town called Washibetsu um, and most of my family, um, those who are still living, have migrated to Sapporo, which is in, um, it's the prefecture, which is like a state here in the U.S. It's the prefecture capital. Mm -hmm. So um, The next thing I want to do is go back in the wintertime. I have a wonderful ice festival, and the, the um, climate and temperature is much like Iowa. So it felt another reason like home. Oh, absolutely. Um, Hokkaido is an incredible place. And actually, I studied abroad there in college as well. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, so it's a, a wonderful uh, cultural experience to be immersed there. Mm -hmm. It was. It was one of the things um, that I wanted to do. I have had a lot of different cultural experiences and other experiences during growing up. Um, I was also a member of the Junior ROTC Marine Corps um, choreographed drill team called the Americans. And so it was composed of young ladies in junior high and high school from around the Des Moines area who traveled nationally competing. And one of my um, colleagues on the team had gone to Japan the year before and I was like, oh, I'd never thought of that. So let's go to Japan. And my parents supported me all the way to do that. Mm, fantastic. Awesome. And really being a part of the military is its own cultural experience. It is. Um, junior ROTC technically isn't part of the military, but it definitely gives you a military exposure mm -hmm. um, because our leaders were retired military members, um, Marine Corps, both officers as well as non-commissioned officers. And so um, the Master Sergeant was one of the most influential men in my life um, for over half my life until his death. Mm. What was his name? His name was Master Sergeant Chris Thompson, Matthew Christie Thompson. Mm. Sounds like an incredible man. He was an incredible man. He allowed a lot of us um, to really grow and develop in terms of leadership and um, was really a role model and showed um, in the moment leadership of 
um, the things that we had to do. For example, a lot of people have um, some distress around giving speeches or you know talks in public and what we had to do was give a five-minute speech based on only writing down one word in our class and um, he was modeling for us because everyone thought oh he does this every day he's a teacher and he's not nervous at all so I distinctly remember him putting his hand on the chalkboard which showed us, hey, my hand is still sweaty. This for me is still something that's challenging, but you know, I'm not gonna give you something that you're not able to do. It may take a lot of work to be able to do it, but he, he really believed in us. That's so wonderful. He really led by example. He did, he did. Hmm. And he made um, a lot of trips possible. I traveled the country with him and the drill team. We would, my last trip um, as a senior, in high school, we went from Iowa to Louisiana to Seattle, back to Iowa in less than two weeks um, with a group of about 60 people. Wow. Yeah. We had a lot of great trips and, um, you know, in order to make those trips possible, we had to do fundraisers. And so um, we would clean the state fairgrounds after the fair, we would, um, sell fruit we would and I only did this once because I almost um, lost my life in the midst of it we would be the chain gang for the football games mm -hmm. uh, and my one experience of not dropping the chains soon enough and moving out of the way soon enough oh wow that I was in the midst of all of you players oh my gosh the play ended so mm -hmm. I did that once and I was like I will be choosing selecting another option for this. Mm -hmm. So how did you go from that into getting into uh, psychotherapy and, and how did you first get exposed to group work? Really psychotherapy for me started from a very young age in that I was the family confidant. I was the one that people came to um, to discuss what they considered sensitive matters. And everyone knew that I would hold their information and confidence as long as they were safe and they weren't doing anything illegal. Mm -hmm. That I wouldn't, I wouldn't share that information. So I grew up being the family confidant and um, curious about people and how people interact. And I'm very much a people watcher, so that's one of my favorite things to do. And I often do it in the airport or in malls or different things like that. Um, so having that history of being the family confidant, I always knew that I would be um, in a field that worked with people. I just wasn't quite sure um, what that work would be. Initially, when I considered going to college, I was choosing between becoming a doctor or a lawyer. And so I initially chose doctor, and then um, I started with the hard chemistry class, the realization I was gonna have to work with people in pain and cadavers, and quickly changed my major to an open major, and graduated as a sociology major, and mm -hmm. then, uh, my first master's degree is in college student personnel, so kind of helping college students um, be the best they could be during their college experience, and um, that's one of the reasons why I still work on a college campus is that I love the environment. Um, it's refreshing and challenging, and it has everything that the broader world has, um, both in positive as well as challenging 
um, ways. And so it's just a little, it's a little piece of the world. Um, and I've worked at some, some large institutions. Arizona State University was the largest in the country with 80,000 students and Florida State University. Um, we have approximately 42,000 students, I believe, currently. Oh, wow. Yes. Incredible. And, yeah. And we are also um, a multi-campus uh, university. So we have a Panama City campus, which I was excited to learn earlier today has just reopened. Um, Hurricane Michael devastated the campus. And so the campus had been closed for several weeks and we weren't sure when it was going to reopen. And so that was impacting our students in the Panama City area. And so it's exciting. And um, I'm grateful that the campus has been able to reopen. Absolutely. Kind of bring back some stability to their lives and the lives of the teachers. Mm -hmm. Yes. And as it says in your bio, you have really made focusing on the impact of racism and power dynamics a, a central part of your work. Could you say a little bit about um, why this work and what's the inspiration of that for you? Sure. Um, growing up in Iowa, I often was the only African-American student involved in many things, um, be that academically, um, interpersonally, I grew up in a neighborhood that had three black families. Um, Iowa, at the time that I grew up, was about 95% Caucasian. And so it was frequently that I found myself in situations where if I was not the only, I was one of a few people of color who were involved in various situations. And I remember from a young age, um, learning a lot from that experience, but also at times feeling very isolated and alone um, and being asked questions that were where I was asked to represent the entire African-American race and mm -hmm. having to provide education around, um, I can't give a response for the entire African-American race. I can give a response for me mm -hmm. um, and encouraging people to get to know one another. Um, but it definitely, I think for me, the biggest thing is that we are all in this world connected and our fates are all connected together. Um, things may happen, negative things may happen to certain people sooner or in different impacting experiences, but we're all impacted. Um, it's, it's, um, it's kind of an awareness. Are we aware that we're impacted or are we um, unaware that we've been impacted because we haven't been um, either directly impacted or impacted in a very severe way? Absolutely. And that's something that I think that you really emphasize in um, the article that you co-wrote with Michelle Ribeiro. Um, the title of that article, for anybody interested in reading it, The Racial and Social Justice Implications on the Practice of Group Psychotherapy, that's an article that you can find in the book, The College Counselor's Guide to Group Psychotherapy. But one of the central points that's made in that article is that uh, racism and social justice issues are pieces that impact everybody, no matter what our identities are. Mm -hmm. and, and in particular, the unique role that group psychotherapy and that group therapists in particular can hold in being agents of change. Mm -hmm. So I wondered if you might speak to anything about uh, those points and how you see the impact of that affecting everyone. 
I think um, individual groups are actually microcosms of the groups in which our clients find themselves outside of whatever environment they may be participating in group therapy, be it college counseling centers, BA, medical centers, um, community centers. And so um, it's an opportunity to help kind of um, focus and mold and create a sense of safety in a smaller environment that will hopefully allow people to um, do some things, try out some new ways of interacting and consider some new things that they perhaps hadn't considered before mm -hmm. within a smaller environment that they then can um, move forward toward that larger environment in various other aspects of their life and become involved and um, be influencers. We're all influencers of our environment as well as influenced by our environment. Um, and the role I think of the group therapist is to um, help to enhance a brave space rather than necessarily a safe space um, because really we're never able to fully completely create a space that's going to be safe. Um, we can make it safer by um, our rules and our guidelines and um, addressing ruptures and um, typical group therapy responsibilities of the leader. However, within that space, we can encourage people to be brave and to challenge themselves. Um, change is the only constant and change is very uncomfortable and um, often difficult for individuals to adjust to. But as it's the only constant, it's something we're always working with. And so increasing individuals' ability to be more comfortable in their discomfort. Mm -hmm. um, I think sometimes people think that I should always be comfortable. And it's not possible to always be comfortable, nor when you're, when you're comfortable per se, are you learning as much as you may be, because really the learning occurs outside our comfort zones when we stretch ourselves. And um, it's not so much that we stress ourselves to a point where we're gonna have a major break or anything like that, but to, to create that ability to have a firm anchor and be able to venture out and go a little bit further out and know that we're still safe and supported. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of hearing um, one of uh, my mentors in this area saying that we know we'll be doing social justice work when we're uncomfortable, but mm -hmm. that discomfort is vital to having those difficult dialogues that we need to address and be vulnerable enough to expose ourselves to and to stay in connection and engagement around to really understand the way this has impacted all of us. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to share with individuals that they will be uncomfortable and that these are very difficult and hard conversations to have. And I think what makes them a little bit easier is if we can create personal relationships within having those uncomfortable conversations. Um, and I can think back to um, first meeting a person who is now truly my sister. Um, we met as college freshmen and with a name like Marseille, it often gets mispronounced. And so first day of class, I had been 
probably having my name mispronounced the entire day. And I came home and she said, hello, and hello, Marcy. And I don't remember the interaction, but she remembers it. And she remembers that I literally bit her head off. And so I'm glad that um, she was not so put off by that interaction that um, it kept her from getting to know me as a, as a person and allowing us to um, create a very deep relationship. We have known one another for almost 35 years. We've known one another for over half of our lives. That's incredible. And, and I think that, that speaks to even that example really speaks to how as as a group leader, we're trying to manage uh, the tensions of people being able to um, have really intense and difficult conversations, or if they're furious about something, or if something's happening that they find offensive to be able to say that and to voice that. Mm -hmm. And to have people communicate very directly in some in sometimes ways that are very, very intense, but to also have enough cohesion within the group and enough uh, commitment to staying connected and talking things through that these conversations can unfold in progressive ways. And I'm curious, any thoughts that you have around what are some of the vital elements that a group therapist needs to have in place in order to be able to have these kind of difficult conversations? So in terms of um, addressing that question, it's important to remember that we're all people and we all make mistakes. And so one of the group guidelines that I was introduced to early in my training is a concept of oops and ouch. And ouch in terms of the group concept is if there is something that's said or done within the group context that, that impacts someone in a negative and challenging way, that individual can verbally say, ouch. And then in that moment, that gives us an opportunity as the entire group to stop and hear that person's perspective and to have a very um, transparent discussion about what happened at that moment in time. And the other con part of that concept is oops. And that is at times when someone may have said something or done something, um, which didn't land in the way that they intended it. So it's a good example of the difference between intent and impact. Um, someone's intent may have been very different than what the impact was. Um, and it's bringing to mind a recent example. So I have a group member who has a very unique name that sounds much like another name. And out of my own awareness, I called her the incorrect name. And so thankfully, Prior to the end of group, um, during the checkout process, she was able to say ouch and then give us an opportunity to talk about it. Um, it I think it was really challenging for her to do it in the moment, but I was very, very excited and grateful that she was able to do it at the time when she did it, which then gave me an opportunity to model to the group that um, I make mistakes as well mm -hmm. and that it's safe for group members to call me on those mistakes. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. So you really create a culture where uh, mistakes happen and they can be acknowledged and it's not going to be relationship ending. Mm -hmm. It's just an opportunity to um, talk about what happened and the impact it had. It is. And sometimes that's very um, challenging for group members because of our own personal histories. Um, it may not have, someone may have been raised in an environment where it wasn't safe to make those types of um, 
statements or um, observations. However, that's another experience of group is to kind of have the opportunity to have um, a reconstructive experience, more positive experience in a way to see that um, challenging things don't often, don't always result as they have in previous ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for people to also, I'm hearing the ouch, that the members are really empowered to speak up when they're feeling harmed by something rather than just let it pass or to remain silent. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. And so also trying to encourage that in the moment when things are coming up, where individuals are coming to you after group as the group leader. Um, I've had this experience where someone came to me after group and experienced some frustration with another group member's interactions. Um, and so I encouraged them to bring it to group. And unfortunately, she wasn't able to bring it to group. And I, as the leader, chose not to put her on the spot of introducing it um, for her. And so um, just followed up with a conversation of, again, encouraging her to bring it to group and understanding the challenge and you know that it may not have been um, an activity that she could engage with in this particular aspect, but however, to think about how she might be able to transfer that to her broader life experience if there was someone else um, within her friend group, within her family that she felt um, a closer connection or a, a more safe connection with should they be in a situation that brought something up for her, encouraging her to bring it up in that situation as well. Mm -hmm. Well, it's wonderful that she was able to use the relationship with you individually to talk about that and to work with the feelings that came up, as well as your willingness to just let her uh, approach it at her pace, mm -hmm. rather than having some expectation that everybody should be able to acknowledge those ouches right away in the moment. Yeah, it's a it's a new concept to, to a lot of my group members. Um, they've never heard of it before. They've never explicitly participated in it. So I realized that it's an introduction of a new concept. And I also realized that we're all coming from backgrounds that um, for some of us, it was safe to be able to say um, our opinions. For others of us, that was not the situation. And so that we're all in different um, spaces kind of makes me think about our identities, how our identities are multi-layered and intersectionality as well. Um, that perhaps in one situation, given one plane, yes, this worked, but it changing just one other component can really make it a different experience. Mm -hmm. And in one context, somebody might feel uh, comfortable enough to speak up in that kind of way about an ouch, but in a different context, it, it might be very different for that person. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, it's something that, you know, when I was talking with members um, about doing this interview, there is a huge sense that a lot of the group therapists know these issues are alive. They can feel them in their group, but they feel so lost or frozen or incompetent or at sea in terms of how to go about addressing these different kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And I think that also can be really rooted in 
the group leader's own sense of inadequacy, some sense of shame that there may be an embarrassment that they themselves haven't done enough personal work or exploration in these kinds of ways. There can be a fear of making mistakes and microaggressing. And I'm curious, anything that you might say to those listeners who have those thoughts or feelings or those feelings of incompetence around addressing these issues in their groups? I think the place to start is realizing that we are all human and we're going to make mistakes um, and doing the awareness of I'm going to make a mistake. I'm going to make an effort. However, if I make a mistake, I'm going to um, own that mistake and um, attempt to fix it and work with it. Um, it's self-awareness is so important in the work that we do, not only within the context of the group room, but also within the context of individual therapy and training as well. Um, and so when individuals are able to get continuing education experiences or um, other outside of work or professional interests where they have the opportunity to learn more, um, I highly encourage us as a field to do that and um, to continue to know that multiculturalism and multicultural competence is not a destination, it's a journey. It's aspirational. I think sometimes we see a goal as, okay, I'm, I've made it, I'm finally there. Whereas, you know, increasing our cultural competence and multicultural competence is, is a process and we're continually in that, that journey and we're learning and kind of the realization of um, I'm not where I really want to be, but at least I'm not where I was. Mm -hmm. I'm continuing to make steps forward. Mm -hmm. And being committed to continuing to learn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's no way we can learn everything. We yes. can never do that. And I think sometimes we have um, very unrealistic expectations. One, that we can learn everything, or another, that there's some perfect way of doing this. Um, and I think when we have that perception that kind of freezes us um, into a situation where not where we're not able to act. And so what I also encourage people to do is to uh, practice self-compassion and to realize that, no, we can never do it perfectly. Perfect is not an option, nor is it um, something to truly strive for. I think to strive for the best that we can do and to continue growing is, is the ultimate goal. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny, I'm, I'm associating back to what you were talking about, uh, the man at the beginning of the interview who led by example. And in some ways, it seems similar to being a group leader that we can make mistakes and we can be committed to being non-defensive and receptive and open to continuing to uh, learn and improve our own awareness of these things and their impacts. Mm -hmm. Or even if we do respond in defensive ways to go back um, when that comes to our awareness and check that out, like what, what did that touch for us? What did it uh -huh. bring up for us? Um, I know personally in my life, um, if someone comes to me and says, you didn't do something, did you? And so it's like, it's not really the question because you started with this question and then you told me I didn't do it. So it ended up in the statement. Um, and it touches a very sore situation between my maternal grandmother and I. She would often pose a question to me in that way. And I'd be like, 
that's not a question, Grandma. <laughs> and so I have to remember, yes, this is a very sensitive area for me. And they, one, don't know that. And two, that's not their intention um, to be humble with that, but to think about, okay, take a second, breathe, and respond to what their question actually is and kind of ignore the statement part of it. Sure. Well, it reminds me of how we all have those kind of raw spots. And I know that sometimes one of the hardest areas for me as a group leader is when I do slip or I do become defensive and just acknowledging that that's going to happen and that there's more information for me and what happened in those moments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think when you're the group leader, we have a spotlight on us and it's placed on us by all of the members of our group and it's always on us. Um, yes. And so it's kind of like being in the hot seat. The group members get to be in the hot seat for a little while and then it gets to transfer around. But we're in the hot seat even when we're not theoretically in the hot seat. All the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you have a quote here that I love, so I'd love to read it. It says, the group therapists, both within our therapy groups and our counseling center offices, have the responsibility and the opportunity to dismantle the silence regarding power and privilege as it relates particularly to race, but also other aspects of identity that intersect with race that include sexual orientation, religion, ability status, nationality, and gender, to name a few. Mm -hmm. That's a really powerful and, and multi-layered statement that um, both Michelle and I hope encourages us to think about the ways in which we are um, both similar and different, as well as both privileged and oppressed. Um, I think what tends to happen is that um, at times we can only, uh, we only focus on the, the ways in which we're oppressed versus also the ways in which we're privileged. And so I think it's important to be able to take a look at both of those perspectives um, and to know that in certain situations, yes, my identity, who I am, is oppressed in this way, but in another way, it's very privileged. For example, with myself being an African-American female, we have some oppressed identities within that context of who I am, but I'm also an African-American female who has a PhD. I have a doctorate, and that's a very privileged um, identity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so really understanding all the all the those different locations and the power that they wield. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, it also raises to mind this question for me of the role of the group leader and to what extent um, the group leader is in a position to be an educator and talk about these kind of issues related to privilege, related to oppression, especially if group members don't have any sort of awareness of those things or oblivious to it, versus facilitating a process and allowing that some of that information to come from the group itself. I'm curious how you see that uh, playing out in groups. One of the ways that I've seen it playing out in groups, um, which mirrors a, a way that I address the work that I do, um, I believe that as an educator, it's my job to plant seeds and water others that have been planted. And so at times I'm introducing new concepts, at times I'm um, challenging individuals to take another step forward in maybe a concept that they've been introduced to before. and 
maybe at certain times I'm, I'm helping people run a half a mile with that. And I think that's the other thing that's very challenging within the group context is that everyone is starting at a different place. Mm-hmm. And so um, where we start for one person may be in comparison, either um, more aware or less aware, more developed or less developed. Um, and I think the, the balance comes from having that awareness and knowing that for some individuals, the concepts that we're working on might be um, not necessarily too advanced, but their awareness isn't there yet. And for others, at times, they may be like, I already know that, and that's not really progressing me. Um, And I hope at those times that that's an opportunity to share with those individuals who feel like I've already done that as a way of being able outside of the group room with others in their life to be able to meet people where they are. That's how we help people grow is we have to be empathetic and understand where they are and then take that perspective of how, how do I teach this? Mm-hmm. How do I, I not preach this, but how do I expose this? Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes it is, really important to recognize um, sometimes within the group room and lots of times within life in general um, we can't always address everything Mm -hmm. and so sometimes we have to make some difficult choices um, about what we do and what we don't Mm -hmm. address and kind of the timing of what we address when Mm -hmm. Mm You know, I'm thinking about one of the myths that seems like it often comes up in the group world that if you're working with a group with um, all members that identify as white, that race and social justice issues aren't salient or important in that kind of context. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, any thoughts that you have about that as a myth? Um, I think it is, one, a very real myth um, that has some very negative implications And I think it's also um, a myth that blinds us to the differences within a group of people who may look very similar. Um, It goes back to that intersectionality of identity. Um, Everyone has culture. Everyone has socioeconomic status. Everyone has an educational status. And so um, to assume that there's no cultural difference within that context is an incorrect assumption because there is a difference there. Um, And that also doesn't take into account the people who are joining our group members in the room um, in the context of their family and their friends. Mm -hmm. Um, Although the group may all identify as one certain uh, racial or ethnic identity, that doesn't mean that everyone in their life does or it may be our assumption sometimes um, what people phenotypically look like is not exactly um, how they identify themselves or what their, what their racial background actually is. It kind of going back to that point you made around uh, assumptions and that there, we can easily kind of fall into assumptions of sameness when in reality there's a tremendous amount of difference that's always in the room and operating. Mm-hmm. And we lose out on the opportunity to really honor and appreciate those differences in others when we just assume that their identities are the same as ours. Absolutely. And I think assuming also um, 
kind of lets us off the hook of finding out more about who are our group members, who are the people who are important in our lives outside of, of our work, um, rather than being like, okay, I, I know this about them. Do I really? Okay, let me investigate. Mm-hmm. And let me let me learn more. And I may find out some things that I never would have found out without having that curiosity. Right. You know, I'm thinking about that idea of letting ourselves off the hook. And I think part of it is also an avoidance around, uh, for some people, the reality that a lot of people don't know actually very much about their cultural background mm-hmm. and feel a lack there, feel a lack of history. Mm-hmm. and the pain that that can cause and also simultaneously then the avoidance of even wanting to address those issues. Absolutely. Um, And that's very, a very real experience. And I think it's important to acknowledge that and encourage um, those who don't feel like they have a culture or that they understand a lot about their cultural background or their ethnic background to do some exploration. Um, and again, that's maybe planting a seed at 2021 that's not going to germinate for a while. Mm-hmm. But at least, at least the seed has been planted, and hopefully other people are watering them as they go along. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'd also like to bring up a, a group example that um, the two of you shared in the article, mm-hmm. which had to do with this arc that occurred um, around topics related to politics. I think that this happened in a group session after the 2016 election. It did. It happened in a group session that um, Michelle was actually the facilitator of. I see. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it, I think that the themes of it had to do with people's reactions to Trump being elected and a kind of demonizing and an othering that took place politically around people who were quote unquote Trump supporters. Mm-hmm. And then a member of the group ends up outing themselves and their family as Trump supporters. And the kind of arc that happened in the group from demonizing and othering to humanizing. And that seems so vital to, to, the, to the dialogue that we're trying to facilitate as group leaders. And I'm curious any thoughts that you have around that arc? That arc is only allowed and created the opportunity to happen when we have a personal relationship with someone. Um, and it, it can be um, a very initial connection relationship. It can be also a very deep connection. It allows us to not only see people just for one aspect. Um, I heard something very interesting on an NPR um, story earlier this morning, and it was someone who was talking about um, politics, as we're hearing a lot about right now with the election being so close. Um, And the person was saying that for them, for their perspective, they hold one perspective, but there are other people in their lives who hold another perspective. And she said, "Um, I kind of look at it like, like mushrooms. And then she explained that, um, you know, I don't, I don't like mushrooms. So when I get a pizza, if it happens to have mushrooms on it, I pick the mushrooms off and I eat the pizza, which is basically saying I accept what this component is and I don't throw this relationship out simply because of one aspect of it. Mm-hmm. So which kind of I, taking... Go ahead kind of taking a more nuanced approach. But I was think, thinking about that from the standpoint of projection and the ways that we 
we do kind of inherently just take aspects of ourselves we find unacceptable and are even afraid of. And then we wholesale want to paint another group of people with those qualities mm-hmm. and it becoming another form of avoidance and really also not getting to understand and integrate those aspects of ourselves. It is. And I think getting to know ourselves can be very challenging in that um, we might find some things that might surprise us. And, you know, as we continue to work to get our, get to know ourselves even better, the longer that we've been involved in the process, we're like, we know more about this. And then something happens and you're kind of like, where did that come from? Right. And then when you don't know where it came from, uh, do you get curious about it and try to investigate it further or do you just kind of ignore it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I'm, so we are just, as an affiliate society, so excited about your upcoming key, keynote. Um, the conference that we are going to be hosting in just a week's time called Unity and Cohesion, Expanding the Circle and Strengthening Bonds in Group Work. And I was wondering if you might uh, share with us any of the kind of central thoughts that you have around the keynote that you're going to be delivering. So the keynote I've titled Connecting in Our World of Disconnection. Um, And we're going to talk about ways in which we sometimes make assumptions about people, ways in which we um, kind of accept things at face value. Um, I will give a little tidbit that there will be um, aspects aspects of an iceberg in the conversation. Mm. Um, What we know about an iceberg is that what we see above the waterline is not anywhere close to the amount of information and um, kind of content that's below the Mm waterline. So hopefully we'll have an opportunity to kind of be involved interactively and um, engage in a couple of things that perhaps folks haven't engaged in before and kind of bring up some, some questions and some curiosities for ourselves. Oh, it sounds very exciting. I love the idea of interaction as kind of a way to begin to find out what's underneath the surface. It starts to bubble up, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It does. I mean, because there are some things that are, um, well, I will say that there are some things that we think are readily apparent because the, sometimes the things that we think um, are examples of, I don't know, let's call it context A may actually be context F but we thought it was A. Um, And we don't get to find out that it's not A until we have this connection with this person that allows us to learn more about their experience and about them as individuals. And it's it's hard um, to think about connecting because we're we're built for connection and we all want to connect. Um, However, some of our past experiences of connecting have been very painful or have been very challenging, which make us fearful of connecting. Um, And I think in my individual therapy, I um, often encourage my students who are um, wanting to learn new skills, develop new ways of interacting, of kind of doing a hierarchy and thinking about who's a person that I can be a little bit more vulnerable with and what is something within this context that I have um, a little bit more security in being vulnerable with with that particular individual. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
So everything is so multi-layered and multifaceted that, um, again, I'm, I'm about self-compassion, that we have to be compassionate with ourselves, but I also think that we have to challenge ourselves to um, continue to, to learn and grow. Um, and again, sometimes I come back to planting that seed. It may be something that someone hears for the first time or hears for the second time, and it, it may not be readily apparent, but you know, maybe a month down the road or six months later, someone might think, oh yeah, that was something that I hadn't thought about in that way before. Yeah, absolutely. It's making me think of kind of pushing our relational edges that if it remind, the thing I love so much about this work and group work in particular is the opportunity for connection, mm -hmm. especially connection around areas that are very vulnerable for us, or maybe there's a lot of shame, or perhaps there's a lot of anger and aggression. And if people have a history of feeling like those things mean uh, a loss of connection, separation, alienation, having the opportunity to stay in relationship and engagement and have those parts of ourselves acknowledged and even um, used in such a way that it tightens the connection rather than creating loss, it seems like that is really where a tremendous amount of transformation can actually occur. I agree. And I think it's also important to have the opportunity to see even when relationships are strained or ruptured, that they have the opportunity to be um, repaired and reconnected. Um, I think for some people, the experience has been that something ruptured a relationship and the relationship goes completely away um, and they're not able to work toward, for whatever reason, making the repairs in that context. And I think what also happens, which is another facet of group that I love, is that you may not be the person, the group member who's directly involved in it, but you're a witness to it. And so you also have that exposure to take and then be able to um, call upon should you be faced in a similar situation. Mm -hmm. That even just witnessing and being in the room can in itself be uh, tremendously impactful. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, to the extent that people are listening to this and they're inspired, they want to learn more, I'm curious any resources or recommendations that you have for group therapists wanting to gain more competency in these areas? Absolutely. Um, I think there are a lot of things that we can engage in. Um, of course, I will promote um, learning more about oneself in any number of ways be they related to being a group therapist, be they related to interests that an individual has. Um, also, returning back to our foundations, um, looking at what Yalom says and the, you know, taking a fresh eye and a fresh experience at that. Um, I also want to recommend um, a very powerful experience that I had and was able to interact with a couple of years ago. Um, Lei Munwa has stir fry seminars and consulting, and I did a five-day intensive um, experience with him that's called Cross-Cultural uh, Facilitation Skills and Diversity for Trainers, Educators, and Therapists. Um, and I believe that he does this particular workshop um, about four times a year, which was very, very powerful in terms of learning about myself, of learning about how I connect with others, and what 
things can potentially cause disconnection in terms of um, individuals' experiences. Mm, that's wonderful. It was a very powerful experience. Would you and be willing to say his name in that workshop title again? Sure. His name is Lei Monwa, and his um, company is Stir Fry Seminars and Consulting. The name of the workshop is Cross-Cultural Facilitation Skills for Diversity Trainers, Educators, and Therapists. And it's a five-day intensive experience. Mm, wonderful. Yeah, it was a really powerful experience for me. Um, and of course, the, the college, the, the book, um, of course, I'm not going to remember the exact title of it um, off the top of my head, but um, The College Counselor's Guide to Group Psychotherapy. Yes, absolutely. Chapters two and three are both phenomenal. The one that we have been speaking about um, throughout this podcast, just to say the, the title of it again, if others are interested in hearing it, uh, Dr. Marseille Turner co-wrote it with Michelle Rubiero, and it is called Racial and Social Justice Implications on the Practice of Group Psychotherapy. Okay. Finally, I'd like to ask you to share any current growth edges, uh, places where you're really kind of working or tweaking your experience as a group leader. Sure. One of them that comes to mind um, that's coming up for me brand new this semester. This semester is the first time um, that I'm facilitating alone. So I have a, a group situation that I don't have a co-facilitator, which is a new experience for me. Um, my introduction to group therapy came during my pre-doctoral internship, which happened to be here at the University Counseling Center at Florida State University. Um, with a wonderful group's mentor who is still my group's mentor is Dr. Joshua Gross. Um, and all of my experiences have been co-facilitated experiences or um, facilitated by multiple individuals. And so this is the first time that within the group context that I'm solely um, practicing group therapy on my own, which mm, very exciting. it's exciting. It's also challenging and a little daunting, but um, we have a very, very supportive situation where, um, like I said, Dr. Gross is here, as well as we have a very strong group program here. Um, and we also have a weekly opportunity to um, spend an hour together doing our group admin um, meeting, which we can share different challenges and, and get feedback from colleagues and you know, kind of throw things around. So that that's the biggest one for me right now is, is increasing my comfort with being a sole facilitator. Yes, flying solo. That yeah. is wonderful. Best of luck with that new group. And it sounds like such a very uh, supportive environment. It is. And the group is awesome. Um, it's a understanding self and others group for graduate students. So some of the, the group members have been in the group since it started um, right after spring break in this past spring. And others have just joined the group as recently as last week. And as we know, every time a person either joins a group or leaves a group, it becomes a new group. So we're a new group all the time. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, uh, Marseille, how could people follow up with you in particular if they wanted to stay aware of any of your new writings, your trainings, anything you're doing in the future? Um, right now, I think the best way to do that would be to email me and um, my email address is mmturner, 
T-U-R-N-E-R -E at fsu.edu. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Marseille Turner, thank you so much for being on the show. And we are so incredibly excited to host you next week for the conference. I am looking forward to coming out to Colorado. I have to say, as an Iowa native, I'm a little concerned about how cool it's going to be, but I will be appropriately dressed. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Yeah. I was I'm looking outside my office. It's actually been hailing throughout our interviews. So it's always interesting to track the weather here in Colorado. You know, that's the thing I've always remembered about Denver from being really young. Denver getting hit with like 20 inches of snow one day and the next day it's gone. So I'm like, I will continue to check the weather until I catch my flight, um, but I will be prepared for the cold. People always tease me because I don't like the cold and I, I dress very warmly. Um, I still utilize a winter coat from home here in Florida. People uh -huh. are like, that's a real winter coat. I'm like, yes, yes, it is. It's a real winter coat because I'm really cold. <laughs> well, we will keep our fingers crossed for warm weather and we will see you very, very soon. Absolutely. Angelo, thank you very much for the opportunity and I look forward to joining everyone for Four Corners. Wonderful. Well, we will see you soon. And in the meantime, please take care and thank you so much for the listeners tuning into the show. Great. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye bye. Hello, my name is Mark Azoulay, and I'm the president of the Four Corners Group Psychotherapy Society. I'd like to let you know that we've recently launched a new website, fcgps.org. This website is a membership directory, it's something that you can sign up for as an FCGPS member for $40 a year. This directory allows you to list your company and practice information, as well as any groups and internship or job opportunities that you may be offering. Our plan is that this directory will become a pillar of the psychotherapy industry and be a great source for reference and referrals for both clients and professionals. So please visit our website at fcgps.org and sign up.